Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, the interim national political reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Having a hard time letting that state beat go. Joining me at the Arizona Capitol Bureau today... Ricardo Carno, I cover education. Ron Hansen, I cover the congressional delegation. Dustin Gardner, I cover the state legislature. Ken Altucker, I cover health care, health policy. This week on The Gaggle... Sober homes that provide people a place to live while recovering from substance abuse will now be subject to increased oversight by the state. Teachers are still talking about walking out even after Ducey's budget proposal. That proposal has yet to be fleshed out. And the state has a new abortion reporting requirement thanks to new legislation signed by the governor. But first, the Congressional District 8 special election is a week away. A lot of money is pouring into the race, Ron. Democrat Hiral Tipperneni outraised Republican Debbie Lesko for the race to the vacant seat. You've been watching all of these numbers, along with the daily ballot return figures. What are the biggest things to watch in this race? I think the the thing that we're all getting curious about is how well can Hiral Tipperneni do in a district that leans so clearly to the Republicans the GOP has a 17 percentage point voter registration advantage. So far, they have a 21 percentage point advantage in ballots that have been returned uh, early so far. So presumably, Debbie Lesko should be relatively well positioned. Most of the ballots are probably in that are going to come in by now. And so the question is, for Harold Tipperneni, how well does she do among Republican voters? How well does she do among independents? Because there's just not enough Democrats in that race, in that district, to be able to uh, win on party strength alone. The information that I've received is that uh, Tipper Nenny is doing relatively well with independents, maybe 10, 12, maybe 15 percentage point uh, advantage among independents um, for her. But given the deficit that she's probably seeing among Republican voters based on the ballots that have come in, that's probably not enough to overcome the uh, Republican lean to the district. So we want to see how well Tipperneni does to actually cut into that, that deficit. Could this race be a sign of a blue wave to come in the general election? Well, Democrats are certainly hoping for it. They've seen it elsewhere across the country in the special elections that have been held all over the nation from Kansas to Alabama and Pennsylvania most recently. So they want and expect to see a better performance for Democrats in this race. The question though is really, what does that even look like? So Democrats have not even fielded a candidate in this district uh, in the past two cycles. So just putting someone to run against is an improvement right off the bat. Uh, this is a district that voted for Donald Trump by 21 percentage points in 2016. Um, the idea that Democrats could cut into that and do better than 21 points is pretty uh, foreseeable at this point. So how low can they cut that? Can they get it under 15? Can they get it into single digits? Those are the kinds of things Democrats are, are hoping to see out of this. Is there a surprise about the amount of money that we're seeing come in for Tipperneni? You know, she has done pretty well at raising money. Um, she's new to politics. 
she's put in some money from her own pocket. Uh, she's a physician. Um, she, but she has done relatively well at tapping uh, money, both from external sources, uh, folks who are uh, Democratic activists and such, but also she's done reasonably well within the district itself in terms of uh, amassing donations and modest amounts from people who live in the West Valley. Um, this also suggests part of that democratic energy that we've seen across the country. Um, and it also, though, comes with the caveat that who wins the money battle doesn't necessarily win the election. So Debbie Lesko really hasn't, I think, killed it on uh, the fundraising. But, you know, she does have a 20-year uh, reservoir of goodwill to draw on uh, among voters. Ron, do you get any sense that there might be a concern um, with Democrats that they're overpromising? I mean, maybe, you know, we see so much optimism that they're going to flip this district. Do they, is there a point where they maybe oversell this and hurt themselves by kind of uh, overplaying this idea of a blue wave? That's a really good question. And, and like I said on the expectations, I don't think we know what Democratic performance in this district should look like. If if things go really well for them and they lose by 12 points, does anybody walk away from that as a Democrat feeling great? I don't know. I mean, a 12-point loss is still a 12-point loss. But, um, you know, Democrats have to remember this is the beginning of trying to compete all over the state, not just in uh, the areas that they've been in, winning in for a generation. The other thing is, is um, Democrats really haven't invested in this race in the way that they did in, say, Pennsylvania. Um, so we saw lots of money counted in the millions invested in Connor Lamb's success in Western Pennsylvania uh, last month. Really, Democrats haven't put up much money in this race, and even Republicans have been uh, relatively restrained. We're talking about probably under a million dollars total for both sides so far. There has been mounting pressure for years now for the governor and the state legislature, which is controlled by Republicans, to adequately fund public education. Um, this year, teachers have been rallying for a 20% pay hike. The governor first said there was not enough money to do so, and he kind of balked at the um, request. He then came out with a news conference saying he could meet the request but he failed to provide any details about how we would get there. Do you have a sense of what the budget plan is to provide this 20% raise? We haven't really heard the details surrounding the governor's plan. Um, you know, all we know at this point for sure is um, he, he announced it last week, surrounded by a group of uh, superintendents, education advocates, state lawmakers, who are lending their support to to it, um, acknowledging that they don't know what the details are, where the funding is going to come from, uh, just saying that it's a good faith effort from the governor, and if he can deliver, then we support it. What is their metric for determining whether or not it is a good plan? Well, I can tell you from the educator standpoint that uh, they are, first off, the, the organizers leading this movement um, appear to be very distrustful of the governor and, and his announcement. Um, you know, they've pointed out that just days before he 
assembled this press conference. Um, he was referring to their, their movement um, as a political circus. He was alleging that it was being led by political operatives and um, they were being egged on by uh, partisan hacks to, to go out in, in the streets and, and, and protest. Um, the, the educators also say that this plan falls short of what they've demanded. So they've also demanded billion dollars in education funding cuts restored and competitive pay for classified employees, you know, school uh, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, who they say uh, also um, are crucial for student learning. How does this play politically? Uh, you know, he, he comes up with this plan. Does it, does it neutralize some of this energy with the Red for Ed movement? It seems like the governor's, you know, staff was feeling or his political team was feeling like he was pretty vulnerable in the last month or two. You know, he's had a series of issues with Red for Ed, with Uber, with, um, you know, these student marches for gun control. Um, but over the last week, it seems like they've done a pretty tactful job of kind of marshalling support around this plan. You had education groups, Chamber of Commerce, a bunch of groups come out over the weekend. So it'll be interesting to see if that sort of saps some of the grassroots energy around this. Those are really kind of the political kind of chattering class, the chambers, the certain hand-picked superintendents or mayors or uh, lobbyists who really um, w want the governor to see maybe a public display of them standing with him. Do you have a sense of how this plays beyond the Capitol bubble? You know, from the educator's standpoint and their, their movement, um, they're moving forward with, uh, with a walkout. They're voting. They're taking a formal vote this week. But, but amongst their group, um, you can see a, a variety of opinions regarding whether or not to walk out. Um, I'm not sure if, if all of that's attributed to the governor's announcement, but you are seeing some educators now saying, uh, you know, the time's not right to do this walkout. You know, we have the momentum. We have the energy. You know, let's put this into another effort. Um, and, and you still have educators frustrated they've they've had the they've been yearning to walk out and that hasn't really changed either so and it seems like a lot of the concern here is optics you know if if they're trying to organize a walkout do they want to do it a week after the governor is saying that he's going to push for raises for them i think it seems or it seems at least to me like a lot of their strategy at this point is trying to decipher exactly how the governor wants to pay for what he's going to pay for. Um, critics of that are trying, you know, very hard to push the message that this is some sort of like a shell game and the governor isn't really funding what he's kind of portraying. Yeah, I mean, just looking at what bare bones information we have from the governor's office on the funding sources here, essentially, as I understand it, there are two components. One is the continued vibrant economic growth that will help lift the state's revenues. And then also uh, they'll find efficiencies and other uh, program sweeps uh, to help come up with money from other parts of the budget. Well, you know, on the economic growth, I mean, look, I think the longest economic growth on record lasted 10 years. We will be in year nine of the current economic expansion in June. So, Look, it's possible we'll set a record. It's possible it'll go on for a couple years. But the idea that this economy could turn south in the next year or two years or somewhere in that horizon is really not far-fetched or overly gloomy. 
the other thing is, is just think of some of the external factors that can influence the economy. Um, think of things like, I don't know, trade wars or real wars um, and what that might do to the economy. Well, how far-fetched is anything along those lines? These days, it feels like those are, you know, fairly, uh, you know, not insignificant risks. The other thing is, is the program efficiencies elsewhere in the budget. Um, you know, Yvonne, you and I were here in 2015 when Governor Ducey came in and brought this CEO ethos to the governor's office and really has been talking about running a, a lean ship from the jump. So... My guess is if there was low-hanging fruit and a lot of efficiencies to be found across state government, they've already done it. So this feels like we're just going to start sawing into bone to try and find money uh, without raising revenues. I think another part of this, too, you know, especially with the teachers and Democrats, is they just don't have a lot of trust for this governor. I mean, this is a governor who when he first came in was pushing education funding cuts. And, you know, years later, his proposal at the start of this session was to basically roll back cuts that he'd already pushed in previous years. And so I think they have a hard time believing, you know, that within the space of a couple months, he's now going to really deliver on a 20% raise. And in many ways, speaking of that mistrust, he did it to himself. He came out in his state of the state last year and suggested that teachers would see significant raises. Well, that amounted to, you know, 04 percent raise over a period of time, adding up to to 2 percent. So, you know, his critics would say he only has himself to blame for this uh, tepid, maybe, support uh, among, you know, people who are really, really strong supporters of um, public schools. And it comes as his office has been involved in continued discussions about whether or not they should do some sort of maneuver to try to um, repeal and replace the expanded school voucher program. And this, I think, furthers that narrative that, um, you know, perhaps he uh, is in some ways favoring the haves over the have-nots. on the sober homes that have proliferated in neighborhoods across the um, state as the drug rehabilitation industry has boomed during the opioid epidemic. These homes often work in tandem with drug detox centers and uh, people from drug or alcohol uh, substance abuse programs transfer into these sober homes uh, while they continue outpatient therapies. The governor signed new legislation intended to increase oversight of these homes. Yeah, basically, um, this is an outgrowth of the opioid epidemic, um, starting with pain medication. Some have transferred to heroin, um, and there's a big addiction problem in Arizona nationwide. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, things to address that, including the governor who pushed through a, a legislative package this session uh, to take on the opioid crisis. Uh, one part of that uh, that was not included in the governor's package uh, was the, the sober home industry, uh, the rehab industry, and that's part of what this legislative uh, 
two bills actually uh, take on. One would license and certify sober homes. Uh, now these often work in tandem, as, as the article mentions, uh, with rehab homes. Basically, what's happening uh, in Arizona and other states is uh, people who seek help for addiction treatment, maybe they do a Google search, uh, a phone number comes up, a 1-800 number, they call a number, and what some of these homes are doing, uh, at least the rehab homes, is they have people on a plane to Arizona the very next day. Um, in a lot of cases, they pay for the airfare. Uh, so somebody from Ohio, for instance, could end up in a, in a rehab home from Peoria. So they detox from whatever their addiction is, uh, opioids or other substances, so that could last a week or so. Um, and from there, they transfer these people to sober homes. Uh, these sober homes work closely with the rehab um, inpatient facility. Uh, they're not really uh, certainly over their addiction by any means at that point, even though they may be technically sober. They may be uh, on medication, uh, you know, such as... Uh, uh, methadone uh, or other types of medication to, to keep them um, off of the substance of their choice. Um, and they'll go through rehabilitation um, in an outpatient setting. So during the day, they'll go to a rehab place uh, in another part of the valley, spend a few hours there, get the treatment they need, uh, put in a bus and trek back to their sober home. Uh, which some of these sober homes are in pretty pricey neighborhoods in the Valley in Scottsdale and uh, Phoenix. Um, so these homes had very little oversight to this point. Somebody would just essentially buy one of these homes in residential communities right in the middle of a nice neighborhood uh, and house eight to ten people there. Um, so really there was a lack of oversight, and this legislation seeks to address that. What were the problems that people were citing uh, about these homes? It really started in Prescott uh, in Arizona, which has often had uh, rehab homes uh, there for years. Uh, it grew um, exponentially uh, during the opioid crisis, and this is a couple of years ago. Uh, State Representative uh, Noah Campbell um, made this sort of his pet project and uh, he, he sought more regulation of this uh, as he heard complaints from neighbor, neighbors. Um, several of these are, are very well run, and there, there really aren't uh, many problems. It's the bad actors they're going after. Uh, these are cases where they really don't provide any oversight. There's no house manager within the house. Uh, in many cases, I've talked to people who have been in these homes. Uh, they have no food. No transportation, no ability to, you know, take care of their daily living needs. Uh, sometimes neighbors have complained um, about nuisance, uh, late late night um, activities, um, petty crime, and such. Although I'm not sure the data really supports that. Um, so Noel Campbell um, pushed through a, a bill a couple of years ago that basically allowed municipalities to regulate this industry, and Prescott did that. Uh, starting in 2017 after uh, their mayor there um, had a year-long uh, hearing uh, task force that had several hearings. Uh, so they took it on and they regulate these homes now and the number of homes have dropped precipitously uh, because of that. Uh, so this bill essentially will take that statewide and will uh, make it a, 
a function of the Arizona Department of Health Services, which will draw up rules and regulations uh, and really regulate this industry. There's a uh, companion bill that kind of gets at the economic aspect of this, uh, which would prevent uh, these uh, rehab homes from paying individuals' um, fees to recruit patients. Uh, we saw that happen a lot in Florida, and so that tries to take the uh, the economic heart out of uh, you know what what some view is sort of a scam, uh, where people don't get the rehab that they need, uh, and it's really sort of a grab at private insurance dollars. written about new legislation, controversial legislation, that requires doctors to ask women who want abortions for specific reasons about why they want to end their pregnancies. We always see groups try to advance anti-abortion legislation. Not all of those bills pass, obviously. This one did. Tell us about the legislation. Yeah, so this was really the big abortion bill of the session. There was not a lot in the way of big abortion measures this year, but this one was it, Senate Bill 1394. Um, Basically, the bill creates new reporting requirements for doctors and abortion clinics, and the most controversial piece would require doctors to ask uh, women for more specific reasons about why they want abortions, and specifically, they would be asking them questions like, were you a victim of sexual assault? Were you abused? Are you, you know, are you um, being trafficked? Um, questions like that. And critics of the bill were very concerned because they felt like these questions were essentially designed to shame or scare women into not getting abortions. There was a last-minute twist before this bill passed the legislature. Take us behind the scenes. Yeah, so when the bill first dropped, there were a lot of protests around this piece that would make doctors ask women um, more questions about their reasons for getting an abortion. That piece was amended out of the bill when it was in committee in the House. Um, And then kind of unexpectedly, there was an amendment dropped when it got to the House floor to reintroduce that piece, or at least reintroduce a version of it. Um, So critics of the bill essentially felt like that was a bait and switch that the Center for Arizona Policy, Kathy Herod, um, and the bill's supporters pulled to kind of quell down some of the the controversy and then bring back the most controversial piece at the last minute. Supporters say that this legislation will actually help victims of sexual assault, women who may be um, victims of abuse or human trafficking. How are they saying that this will maybe help address the needs of these women? Yeah, so when a woman is asked the set of questions, if she responds yes, that she's been abused or that she's been raped or she's being trafficked, the doctors will be required to give her information about how to contact law enforcement or how to access victim services. Um, And we should also add, too, that a woman can decline to answer the questions and the information that is gathered is kept confidential and no patient names are reported to the state. But on the flip side of that, you have um, domestic violence advocates saying that this is not the right way to go about this, that doctors are not trained to deal with the emotional needs of patients. And essentially, they say this is adding another layer of trauma to an already kind of uh, fraught situation for women that have a lot of, you know, stigmas uh, facing abortions. I'm curious how doctors view this. Um, I mean, there's sort of this implicit trust between a doctor and a patient, and for them to put this added duty uh, on a doctor to ask a a question like this. Um, 
Have you heard much feedback uh, from them, and what do they think about this? Yeah, I spoke with a couple of doctors um, throughout the session as this bill was making its way through, and basically, you know, I think um, by and large, the medical community is saying this is not a good idea. Um, the bill was opposed by several major medical organizations. Um, and one of the doctors I spoke with said that, you know, look, at the end of the day, this is just a veiled attempt to discourage women from getting abortions. They didn't see a real practical need to do this. segment, this one, the brainchild of education reporter Ricardo Cano, we bring you Spill the Tea. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Ricardo, dish on your beat. What's the gossip? Um, so details are sparse, but uh, Joe Thomas, president of the Arizona Education Association, state's teachers union, uh, confirmed to us that they've been actively exploring uh, whether to introduce ballot language this election to uh, you know, to address the 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 billion dollar funding shortfall in in, in education, um, we don't know what that would look like, and we don't know how committed they are to it yet. Um, other than, you know, it could look they could try to increase income taxes, that sort of thing. So, but that there are even talks about this, even after the governor released uh, his broad brush plan. Uh, to try to address some of these needs, I think is probably a, a big deal. Ron, dish on your beat. So the uh, Republicans have a lot of reasons to feel reasonably secure about uh, the West Valley uh, congressional race, but there has been a lot of uh, folks traipsing through the West Valley in recent weeks uh, from national Republican circles to sort of make sure that the landscape is not overly hostile and uh, want to make sure that there are no surprises in that race. And I think they're also sort of laying the groundwork for the fall as well. They want to make sure that Republicans don't get wiped out in this uh, alleged blue wave. So um, a lot of Republicans from D.C. Uh, pulling out their GPS and navigating through Glendale and such. Dustin? Um, I'm getting the sense that there's a lot of concern, um, more concern, gathering around uh, Michelle Reagan's reelection campaign for Secretary of State. The numbers that came out this week were not good at all. Um, Katie Hobbs, the Democratic, uh, one of the Democratic candidates, she raised more than Reagan. And then uh, Steve Gaynor, Reagan's major Republican opponent, he has self-funded more than 600000 got more money in the race than Reagan. So I think we're going to see um, perhaps some increasing pressure for around Republicans to either get behind Reagan or to find um, some more support for Gaynor to possibly get her out of the race. Ken. Medicaid Director Tom Betlack uh, signaled that he expects the decision soon on Arizona's work requirement uh, for people who qualify for Medicaid. Uh, this has been uh, sort of a controversial point with, um, uh, with some groups who feel that uh, there's no need for it. The Ducey administration makes the point we're really preparing people for uh, the private uh, sector workforce and hopefully transition them to coverage, insurance coverage from a job, presumably a better paying job. Uh, and he sees this as sort of uh, in tandem with job training and putting more Arizonans to work. I'm wondering if former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio has lost his fundraising mojo. He reported raising about half a million dollars for his uh, Senate 
run that pales in comparison with what he raised as sheriff in 2016 during the the first part of the year where he brought in like close to two million dollars so i don't know i don't know i i look forward to talking with people um about uh, whether or not he's kind of lost that money manage That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. At Ricardo underscore Cano one. You can follow me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. I'm at Dustin Gardner, and that's G-A-R-D-I-N-E-R. I'm at K Tucker, K-A-L-L-T-U-C-K-E-R. Thanks to the politics team and also our producers, Haley Sanchez and Carly Henry. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week.